And so those are the kind of games you want to identify and play in. So the first thing is like pick the right game. But then once you pick that right game, after that, then your strategies are actually very similar to what you're doing in TradFindMark. Hey, everybody. Tanner here with Wagner Ventures. On today's episode, we have Michael Fang, co-founder at Hummingbot. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagner Ventures podcast, where we do snapshots with interesting founders from across Web3. Check out wagmeventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with Michael from Hummingbot. I'm here today with Michael Fang, co-founder at Hummingbot. Michael, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Just to start, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and a little bit more about your professional journey, especially kind of leading up to starting Hummingbot? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think I've had a you know really long and yeah, kind of like a diverse journey since getting here. So I was born in China, but only lived there for six years because my parents were our graduate students at the University of Florida, uh, which is why my Twitter logo has a, it's a Florida Gators you know mascot. Oh, nice. Uh, I was wondering but, about uh, that. Yeah, yeah. So so <laughs> I grew up in Florida. You know, went to you know, lots of Gators football games with my dad. Just grew up like loving sports and. You know, everything, you know, Florida related. And I basically had a Southern accent, you know, when I was a kid. But eventually, you know, moved up north, went to high school in New Jersey, you know, school in Philadelphia. And then at the time, my dad was actually working on Wall Street because he had got this job doing quant trading at a firm called Susquehanna Investment Group. Back then, it was really small. Now, SIG is huge. But so because of that, I, I followed his footsteps. I, I worked in Wall Street for nine years, you know, combination of New York and Hong Kong. And at the time, this is like, you know, right before the financial crisis, I had a hand in basically structuring some of the these derivatives that caused the financial crisis. Basically, so I guess my claim to infamy is that I structured the first CDO backed by subprime mortgages back in 2002. So basically worked in TradFi for about nine years total, you know, did well financially. But after the crisis, I just like got really like disillusioned because, you know, I just felt like I had truly contributed to lots of people losing their homes and jobs. And so that, that's what actually let me have this like kind of like spiritual awakening almost. And so I quit finance. I moved to the Bay Area and I, I basically enrolled in a master's program at Stanford doing like basically engineering. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to get out of finance and try to build something that added value. So kind of like, you know, after Stanford, this is tw- 2012, I just like, you know, started like, you know, getting to startups and, you know, trying to do, do a career own startup. So my first one was acquired and then 2017 rolled around. And then, you know, basically, you know, my, my co-founders and I decided to do something in the crypto space because this is like the first ICO boom. Everyone's super excited about, you know, like crypto and that kind of stuff. So initially, what became Hummingbot initially, initially was a hedge fund. So we started a hedge fund and we made it on chain. So basically the way it worked, it was like people could invest ETH through a smart contract. We used an Oracle to basically compute the value of a portfolio of assets sitting in Coinbase and Gemini. Then my co-founders like machine learning algo was controlling. And so that worked pretty well up until we got this letter from the SEC and said, hey, it looks like you guys are doing general solicitation. You're marketing this on-chain hedge fund to retail. So we actually weren't like we were basically we had this protocol. You can still find it called Fund Protocol that we were trying to get people to use. And we were basically trying to market the usage of this protocol for creating like more efficient open source hedge funds. But unfortunately, SEC didn't really understand that. And after six months of like, you know, talking to them, they asked us to settle. So, so we did uh, because, you know, we were still a small, small startup. So that's kind of what led us to essentially open source, basically close down the hedge fund, settle, and then 
we open source our tech stack. And that became Hummingbot. So that was four years ago. Today, Hummingbot is an, essentially it's a DAO that manages the open source project. Whereas we have a sister company run by my co-founders called Coin Alpha that does market making and engineering services using Hummingbot. So the whole ecosystem, you know, we really serve the community. But yeah, we're just really trying to make an open source project that helps people build trading bots work in the crypto world. Fascinating. I mean, so many fascinating parts of that story. So since we kind of, since you kind of left off on this, I'd love to talk about that decentralization piece. And I think my main question is around this decision this past year to give governance rights to HBOT token holders and to decentralize your operations. We're like, main question would be, what has that been like? And, and then maybe secondary question would be, are there any lessons learned from that experience that could be useful to anyone else thinking about progressive decentralization? Oh, yeah. I would say a ton of lessons. So the first of all, I would say is I think that our intention has always been to decentralize Hummingbot because our goal for us is to build something like Linux. But what we see with Linux is Linux works because it's community owned, whereas open source projects like Android that has always been owned by a company like Google have never really gained true community adoption. Right. But if you look at Linux, it's still governed by board of directors. And the users of Linux don't really you know, have any control over the roadmap. So I think for us, we wanted to build something that was open source, but was really owned by the community with who are able to vote for how you know, the important changes are going to happen. I, I would say when we first launched Hummingbot Foundation, the idea was that every single changed code base, i.e. every pull request, needed to be voted on. And so that's why for the first few months, not a lot happened because we spent a lot of time voting on pull requests and trying to get people to vote on pull requests. And then eventually realizing that a lot of people, you know, don't really want to spend a lot of time voting on pull requests they don't really understand. And they have to spend a lot of time diving into. So it's kind of like, I think, if you look at where our system is today, which is, we aggregate votes into, you know, like basically every quarter, people vote for the top exchanges, they want us to support the top strategies they want us to support. And they only do that once a quarter. Versus what we had initially, which was every single pull request got voted on. You can kind of see the transition in the governance system kind of away from kind of like the spirit, I think, is still the same, which is what's important is still controlled by the governance folders. But I think we've tried to learn what do people actually want to vote on? What is something, what is, what is like impactful for them? What is easy for them to actually make a decision on? And, and how do we make voting a positive experience versus chore? Yeah, it's fascinating. So Hummingbot, I mean, impressive adoption, right? Averages 100 million in 24-hour volume and over a million downloads so far. I guess I'm curious, just taking a step a little bit back in time, like what was the point at which you realized, okay, we've definitely got some product market fit here. And what do you think were some of the key variables that led to Hummingbot's early adoption? Yes, I actually don't think we have great adoption, honestly. So I, I think we have decent adoption for certain use cases like market making. But I think what we're trying to do now is broaden and generalize Hummingbot's usage, other types of strategies, more exchanges, and just make it more of like a general framework for building bots instead of just like a tool that you run bot, run one type of bot on. But I would say one key to adoption is, I would say, you know, like taking a step back, um, a lot of people have tried to create open source trading, you know, algo projects. And when we first started Hummingbot, there were you know, many of them that were just like created, maintained by a single engineer or two. And if you look at the ones that are used today more heavily than Hummingbot, like CCXT, um, there's still very much kind of like just an open source code base. 
that someone has just opened open source in the spare time. I think the hard part about Hummingbot, and this is kind of what, what I think is allows us to kind of keep on going, is that we spend a lot of time up front to try to modularize the code base, to try to make it such that like someone can add a connector and it works with the rest of the code base. Other, another person can add a strategy and it works with this code base. And then we continue to try to modularize different components so that they can be actually maintained by different people in the community. And so th that modularity is, I think, an important aspect to creating a community-owned code base because it allows like one person to say, you know, I own this piece of the project and I want to maintain it and keep it going going forward. So, because like, I think the, like, what makes a DAO work is really the individuals involved and like, how much commitment they have to it. And unless you give them ownership, and it's not just about number of tokens, it's about this piece of code belongs to me, and I'm going to maintain that going forward. That that's how you make that work. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's really interesting to hear the connection between modularity and kind of this bigger vision of decentralization of the code base, but also like the open source of the code base, but the decentralization of the team, where it it has to do with a sense of ownership for the for the community member themselves. That's that's really interesting. Right, um, and that's kind of why we've started to like not just have different parts of the code base, but actually individual repositories outside of Hummingbot. That, that individuals are kind of contributing to or really owning. So for instance, like there's actually a separate orchestration module out there now that's totally community built. It allows people to basically like, you know, run like 10 Hummingbots and have them all talk to each other. And so we consider that like we create bounties to allow people to, you know, like push that forward and prove it. But it's not a code base that we ourselves maintain. Yeah, fascinating. So maybe another step back here, but you know, I think one interesting part of your story is this nine years you spent in sort of TradFi markets where, you know, I think one question I might have and, and others might have is what would you identify as the most important or the most salient differences between crypto markets and TradFi markets specifically for traders and especially when it comes to the type of trading that Hummingbot really enables? Yeah. So I think that, yeah, so the, the it's actually really different. Well, it's a very similar type of trading from like a, like what you're doing standpoint, like, like market making or arbitrage or kind of like you're trading or doing directional signal-based trading, the trading strategies are very similar across whether it's like individuals doing it or Wall Street. The way I explain it, it's kind of like the difference is like it's kind of playing poker, right? It's like the the big guys are forced to play in the big rooms because they're, they're betting with lots of money. And so by nature, like they're playing the World Series poker kind of level. By definition, they have to employ like the the the, the most efficient strategies, the fastest code, whatever. Otherwise, they're going to get beat. But if you're like an individual, you're not playing those kind of games. You're playing like the, the smaller games where you're competing against people, like people trading manually. And so those are the kind of games you want to identify and play in. So the first thing is like, you know, pick the right game. But then once you pick that right game, after that, then your strategies are actually very similar to what you're doing in TradFi markets, which is, you know, you want to basically collect data. You want to identify some type of like market condition. And you know, create some type of you know strategy that's taking advantage of that, exploiting that opportunity, and then and ideally you can kind of like you know either back test or forward test that strategy, see how it works with a small amount of capital before deploying it you know at, at scale, and then there's usually a certain window of opportunity for that to succeed before the, the performance starts to degrade, and then you need to find you know either a new strategy, a new pair, or new new market. I think what I'm trying to explain is I think the overall process and what you're doing day to day is very very similar. That's kind of why we, we see people who are able to kind of like basically get a job, you know, at a market maker, you know, after they've, you know, used Hummingbot well enough. But I think the difference is the, the tooling, like for instance, like, you know, Hummingbot is, 
is designed for to be easy to use because it's Python. However, if you're running the strategy at, let's say, Jump, you're probably doing so in C++ or Rust code. Got it. That makes sense. On that exact point you just left off on too, I'm, I'm curious on behalf of anyone who's listening and thinking, man, Hummingbot sounds really cool. How technical would someone need to be in order to get started with Hummingbot's products? You mentioned it's in Python, so it's relatively simple, all things considered. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that for, for folks who might want to engage with your yeah. products? Yeah. So I, I would say, I think Hummingbot's usable for anyone who's technical. And I kind of define technical as someone who's like, you know, understands command line, you only need this would be a coder, but I do have someone who's very familiar with Excel and, and those like types of applications. Folks who succeed the most Hummingbot are the ones who can kind of tweak or customize what they're doing. So which is why, you know, when we first started, we had these like what we call strategies where people just change the configurations and they just run it. And now we're trying to move people more toward like what we call scripts which are you know, actually like set strategies that are configurable. And we kind of want people to tell them, like change the code and, and edit a little bit to design for themselves because those are the folks we've seen are actually sticking around because unfortunately, I guess like, you know, like it or not, market making is a competitive sport. So it's like, if you're just running some off the shelf bot, you're likely going to be losing. Right. That makes a ton of sense. It's interesting to hear your team is kind of actively engaged, whether from a retention standpoint or retention motivation, but also probably just for, you know, the helpfulness, the genuine helpfulness of wanting people to have a good experience and succeed. That's really interesting. You guys are kind of that hands on. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Maybe it might, might make sense to explain Tanner, like, like, like how we, how our business model works, because sure. I think we're actually yeah. incentivized to do this. So the way that Hangout works is that, so it's an open source project. It's just open source software that people download and use by plugging in their API keys. And so a lot of people ask us this question, you know, how do you guys make money? So a lot of people are surprised when we tell them that we're actually profitable, you know, pretty much. The reason is because we have two revenue streams. The first are uh, partnerships with exchanges where we get a rebate whenever someone uses Hummingbot. So the top exchanges we have partnerships with are Binance and Gate.io. So what that means is, you know, whenever someone kind of like runs Hummingbot, a portion of the fees, like typically like thirty percent of the fees they pay, come back to us at the end of the month from the exchange. So this doesn't come from the user. This is basically purely from the exchange. And the reason exchanges do this, they call these API broker programs, is because they've noticed that the the bot runners, the the folks running bots, are generating more volume, more trading activity than an average user. So that's why they partner with us. And this is also how CCXT. Uh, three commas and other bot projects make money. But for us, we actually don't want to depend on that because you know, it's very volatile. It depends on how much volume people do, and that's really outside of our control. So a few months ago, we started a developer boot camp. It's called Bot Camp that offers like basic cohorts that teach people how to use Hummingbot to build a trading strategy of their choice. So we've done four cohorts already, and and it, we feel like by kind of adding education, you know, it, it really helps people kind of learn how to use Hummingbot to build what they want. And that also helps them do more volume. And so we feel like between these two revenue streams, it kind of gives us an incentive just just go out and make Hummingbot easier to use and add more features. And by doing so, we, we should be able to essentially build a sustainable project. Yeah, that's really an elegant kind of incentive design from kind of all the participants, actually, to make that really helpful for the end user, actually. So take, you know, maybe a, a quick jump here, but... I'm curious about any significant surprises along the journey thus far. So specifically, like any key surprises with building Hummingbot and how you and your team have kind of adapted to those unforeseen or unexpected 
instances. Yeah, I think a lot about the, the counterfactuals of like where, you know, what we could have done and what, what we, sh- we should have done to like, you know, kind of like grow more. So I, I think I'm just really glad that we're here at this point because, you know, it's been, I've been in crypto for six years now. And to me, it's more like the, the longer you stick around, the longer you actually see what's going on, the, the more, the more you kind of like, your eyes are open to how the world really works. So right. I, I think to me, a couple of big lessons are, I wish, actually, I would say, I, I wish we had been more thoughtful before we had raised a Series A round in 2021. So what happened was we launched Hummingbot in 2019. It was really hard to like get people to invest at that point because you know we were just an open source project. And then we launched, this is where we're still when we're one company, we launched this platform called Hummingbot Miner, where it allowed people to use Hummingbot to earn rewards for market making for various projects. That platform really started to blow up at the end of the, like we launched at the end of 2019 and started to blow up like starting with the pandemic. And so we were able to basically raise a Series A round at the end of, you know, at the end of 2020 and became 2021. But uh, I think at that point, we, you know, we kind of like, see, we didn't realize how much of that was just driven by overall volume coming into crypto of like, and just the, the DeFi summer bull market thing. And so unfortunately, I would say we could just overhired and just over, overgrew with with that capital. And so 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 today I think both Hummingbot Foundation and Coin Alpha are much more, you know, sustainable as in we're basically much more closer to break even or profitability. And so now it's basically you know more likely than not that we'll survive and, and be able to keep on going. But I would say I wish we had been a bit more prudent about how we spent that series A round that we had raised. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. And and honestly, it's pretty reasonable given just where the market was at at that point in time. Like when you think about exactly what you said, like that specific chart showing comparing volume of capital flowing into crypto, you know, in terms of VC dollars compared to even like late 90s uh, and showing them basically almost identical. It seems like a pretty reasonable, I don't know if you'd call it a mistake or a decision or however you characterize it, but that makes a ton of sense. I, th- I think the, the the trap that I think founders fall into is more like, I think it's more like, yeah, it's easy to say you're not going to do it, but uh, yeah, I, I've been a founder for a long time and, and I think it's almost like it's easy to, yeah, it's hard to be, yeah, be, be cheap when others are greedy and, and vice versa. Ideally, you can kind of almost like try to do the opposite of what the market's doing and then you'll be good. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, so question here that's become kind of a recurring question on this podcast is, if I were to say the future of crypto is blank, how would you fill in the blank kind of from your vantage point at Hummingbot? Where is crypto going? Yeah, sure. I would say, I think my vantage point comes from, you know, like working and basically tradifying crypto and, and tech generally for the last like 20 years. And, and to me, crypto is basically the, what I call the digitization of finance. So, and the reason is because if you look at like the finance, like, you know, it's, it's just like all markets are, are basically like kind of like, it's, you don't really know what's going on. So I think what people don't realize is almost like, it's not like crypto is going to replace fiat, right? Like turning finance from like an analog market into more of a digital market, we, we kind of know where everything's happening, is actually a process that has been going on for the last like probably a, like 100 years. If you look at like kind of like the initial stock markets to the like HFT systems into crypto. So there's something where the, the new like DEXs that are coming out right now that are kind of like, you know, like they're really fast. They're, you know, kind of like they're basically like kind of single blockchain systems that are like they're basically databases. They're actually not that different from some of the exchange designs that, you know, like the HFT firms have proposed in the last like you know, 20 years. So I think it's actually more of a convergence. And, and so what I mean is like you know, crypto is a digital finance is that I think the exchange 
exchange sector is the one sector where you're going to see kind of like essentially this hybrid between what a crypto DEX looks like and a fiat, you know, like a, an FX exchange. And so it's and so that's where I think there's really got like a synthesis of you know what what, what crypto really is going to be doing and, and the values offering in the long term. Yeah, that's a really interesting take on that particular part of crypto. So maybe two last questions for you, Michael, before we wrap up here. First question would be, and you've you've really shared some good alpha on this already, but I'm curious, any you know kind of maybe your most generalizable advice for founders building in the crypto and blockchain space based on your experience. Here, here's one. Don't raise capital. Got it. <laughs> Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So I would say if I were to do another startup again, I would try to do a startup where I don't need to raise any capital from external investors. Got it. Okay. So Michael, last question here. What is your team working on right now? And what is the best way for people to follow along on the journey? Because we're basically starting to be profitable. I think we're, we're trying to figure out like, how do we kind of like distribute our profits such that actually helps us grow and helps us kind of like, like you know energize the community and, uh, and do those things. So so initially we're probably going to be allocating that into bounties. We've been doing bounties for a while already, but we've been paying out with our own native token. Which you know it's like you know do people really want to get this token or do they want to get you know USCC? So we're going to start there. But but overall, I would say we're actually looking more for a community to tell us what we should be doing with our with our profits. Like you know like should we be doing the, you know, like liquidity mining campaigns or like, you know, funding more dev bounties or other competitions or other things like that. So that's why I would say, yeah, the most important thing, people should check out our bounties board to see what bounties they pick up. Right now it's all HBOT, but we're going to have, you know, stablecoin bounties and different types of like non-dev bounties there pretty soon. Perfect. Michael, thank you so much for the time. This is awesome. I really, really appreciate your time. And I think everyone's going to really enjoy getting to learn more about Hummingbot and the really cool work happening there. So have a great rest of your week here and take care. Good. Thanks, Tanner.